Hello and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe, I'm really excited about our guest for today's show. He is one of my all-time favorite banking analysts, a guy called David Hendler. Why do you like this uh, analyst so much? What is it about his work that separates him from other banking analysts? All right. Well, David was known for working at this um, research shop called Credit Sites. I don't know if you've heard of them. They have a bit of a bearish bias, some people would say. But what David did really well is in the run-up to the financial crisis, he spotted a whole bunch of the risks in the banking system that not that many other people saw. And then after the financial crisis, he was one of the banking analysts putting out some really, really interesting research out on the business of being a bank, what was permanently broken and what could be fixed. Yeah, this has become a really big topic uh, people have been talking for the about this for a while, but in the last several months, it seems like there's been this big surge in people talking about this question of, is the traditional banking business model structurally flawed? In other words, not just a slow recovery from the financial crisis, but some sort of permanent impairment. Right. This is the classic structural versus cyclical debate. Are things like fixed income, the bond trading business going to come back or has something permanently changed that means they're basically dead forever? And uh, we're definitely going to ask David how he feels about that. Well, this is a huge question because there's so much riding on the health of the bank. So much money is in the banking sector, so much wealth. And so this question of can the banks actually recover or are they doomed to be much smaller than they were in the early part of this century is absolutely massive. So I'm looking forward to getting the answer. Here is David Hendler. He is the former banking analyst at Credit Sites, and he is now founder and principal at his own risk advisor, uh, Viola. David, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for your time. So I suppose to be begin, you built this reputation as uh, the guy who saw a lot of the risks coming before the financial crisis. How did you manage to do that? That's uh, funny you should ask. Um Basically, I started on the buy side at a conservative life insurance company, New York Life. Hmm. And they, they taught me some very good old age investment principles, you know, where credit analysis was emphasized. And, uh, you know, being, I guess, cautionary or skeptical when, uh, you know, new issue bonds were sold to investors, institutional investors, or secondary bonds were sold to be, you know, a little skeptical and not just take the up case, you know, stress tested for the down case. And then if you felt comfortable and the spreads were and yields were, you know, amenable, you, you know, you would do the deal. So I, I think it's my early days on the buy side in the early to mid 80s. So what did you see prior to the crisis specifically that others were missing? Well, I had been doing uh, bank and finance analysis probably for close to 20 years, so I saw a couple of cycles. I saw the 1980s energy bust and real estate bust in Texas, New England, California, and the SNL debacle of the 1980s, 
And I just, and then I saw, um, you know, the tech wreck of the early 2000, 1999. So I kind of understood how things that look too good to be true usually were. And you try to, you try to get ahead of the decline by, you know, writing reports and warning your customers or investor base about the upcoming difficulties. Then as it plays out, try to f- figure out if there's a risk-adjusted return opportunity on the on the upside once you know most people see it and they sell out and they're you know overly worried because uh you know they just thought it never could be this way before kind of like you know the real estate markets are so strong in new york city in the luxury area and people think it'll never go down i think that's a negative signal there David, did any of your reports before the crisis get you into trouble? Because some of the stuff you were saying back then was really controversial. What do you mean by trouble? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would say that at time at times, um, you know, companies they wouldn't like it, and they would call me about it, or call people that I worked for about it, and you know, usually, um, you know, we just heard them out, and that was it. Um, so, you know, there was there was some friction. You know, investors didn't do that, I would say. I'd say it was more, you know, the companies I covered. Let's uh let's spin it forward today. Right now we're in this period where people aren't so much concerned about a banking collapse or anything like that, but concerned that the business model of the major banks is just sort of in either a permanently low state or a state of sort of long decline, and that the business model that was thriving pre-crisis will never come back. What's your take on that, and why are we seeing such a difficult time for banks to hit goals of profitability? We see these continued layoffs. What's going on now? Right. Well, you know, in my 30-odd year career watching the bank sector in the U.S. primarily, I mean, there, there wasn't really many years that you would call normal. There's always, like, booms and busts and maybe some quiet periods in between. So I think what's happening is, you know, we have a demographic shift mm-hmm. from the baby boomers who are on average 58 years old and they're retiring and maybe they don't have enough money to retire. So what, what's going to happen with them? Can they put all their money in the stock market now because the bond market doesn't have enough interest yield to support their minimum living standards? I don't know. I think it's kind of risky. So I, I think you know you have that shift, and as well as the millennials who have a certain way of life that you know favors urban dwellers, walkable commutes. But you know what? It's getting expensive, and I heard lately that on another media source that maybe the suburbs is a better deal. Um, and you're seeing in a lot of suburbs they're making little town centers that simulate sort of a Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you know, uh, parts of New York City experience, and you could get on the train and go into the real thing once in a while. So um, I think you know that demographic shift is shifting how banking is. Hmm. Uh, pitched, distributed, you know, people don't go into the branch anymore. They use their uh, smartphones to make deposits. So nobody really knows the bank anymore except it's an app or something. So I think, you know, that's one change that's reducing employment. Um, I think it increases risk. If you don't really know people on a human fashion, like face-to-face, I think there's a lot of... uh, 
threats like runs on the banks because you don't really know anybody. When you get panicky, you need to talk to someone, but you never did. So how do you do it? You know, I think that's one trend. You know, the other trend is big data, disintermediating back offices, um, computer types, systems types, as well as, you know, different types of loan officers. Um, so, you know, big data, cloud, Bitcoin, blockchain, you know, that's all reducing so it's like a, the human it's a element. By a thousand cuts everywhere you look, there's some sort of threat well, to the Well, it's change. And, um, you know, then there's a lot of credit building up again in credit cards. We just pierced one trillion in outstandings for the first time. I think it's going to double in size as the millennials use the credit cards to realize their dreams by borrowing money. And a lot of them are going to get into trouble. They're just humans like every other generation. So, um, Commercial real estate, I think, is going to have some problems. Multifamily, which everyone thinks is a ticket to gold. it's I've seen it in my own buying and selling in, in different craze periods in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. So, you know, trees don't grow to the sky, and you have to see when it's overdone and try to get people to focus on it. Because when they have a house and it's going up in price, they don't want to hear a story that housing's going down. It hurts their own personal pocketbook. They just don't want to face the reality. What about interest rate risk, David? I remember this is something you talked a lot about a few years ago, uh, and since then, you know, rates have stayed pretty low. We had one rate hike from the Fed. We're talking about another one possibly this month or next. Is that a risk for the banks? Well, I think what's happened is rates have stayed low so long that some of the things I talked about a few years ago, they kind of, um, the yields rolled into a lower environment, whether it was the investment securities, the cash securities like MBS, mortgage-backed securities, or, you know, different types of derivatives that simulate, you know, investment views or MBS. So I think, uh, you know, rates, uh, banks maybe, you know, take a little bit more risk on the, on the cash side. It's hard to simulate it as much on the synthetic derivative side. It's kind of played out in a way. But, you know, when rates rise, you know, nobody really knows how sensitive deposits are to higher rates. So far with the 25 basis point move, there has not been, you know, a huge out-migration from bank deposits. But we'll see how it goes, if how gradual the Fed is, um, the pace, and how, you know, deposits react. Because deposits could reprice faster than bank loans could be repriced about- or securities yields. What about um, the decline of these trading businesses? So we continue to see the major Wall Street banks slim the ranks of their trading. They always talk, oh, this was a bad quarter for trading. There wasn't enough volatility. Is that business ever going to thrive in a big way again? It's going back to its core purpose, which is uh, capital creation to grow businesses or consumer asset classes. Less speculative, by far less speculative. So I, I, you know, under the current regime, Dodd Frank, Basel III, and all the implementations, you know, what we saw in the, you know, two thousands, you know, you're not going to see for a while. Whether that gets rolled back with different political movements, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or even Hillary Clinton, you know, we'll see. Um, but for the time being, you know, trading desks have been de-risked. Um, you know, if you wanna. 
you know, gamble, you know, you got to do it in uh, non-regulated markets or sports fantasy leagues or something. So, but you would say the main problem, the reason those desks aren't as profitable, essentially they've been stripped of their ability to gamble. Correct. David, give us a snapshot of what the bank of the future is going to look like, say in 10 or 20 years. Is it going to be recognizable to what we have today? Well, it's going to, I was just anticipating that question. I think it's going to be a little like, you know, you know, Johnson Space Control, Mission <laughs> Control. You're going to have, you know, a few dozen really smart guys and women running the bank. And then a lot of it's going to be automated and cloud uh, distributed. You're not going to have, you know, you're going to have, you may have more robotic investment management. I mean, the buy side's really at risk. I think there was a story about Fink at uh, BlackRock saying there's going to be a wave of consolidation in asset management. Um, so, you know, people, the younger generation is more comfortable doing businesses on a smartphone or Skype or whatever. So it's going to be a lot less people pushing out even more credit. Um, but there's risks because, you know, the best way to do credit businesses is to look at someone's eye and decide, is that person really going to pay me back? Hmm. And I'm not sure if fintech has yeah, solved it just, that. It, yeah, it doesn't sound like then you're very optimistic about some of these new marketplace lenders or other attempts to uh, make lending more efficient if you think there's still a value in looking at someone in the eye. Yeah, I would agree. Or being in the same room and having a context about what's going on. So, you know, fintech's going to go through an evolution of fits and starts, of discovery of what sort of works and maybe it being overdone and it doesn't work. And I think we're starting to see some models, you know, break down a little, even though there was a lot of fanfare for things like Lending Club um, and others, you know, where the algorithms don't capture the human element precisely and uh, they get carried away extending credit automatically are there any technologies uh, you mentioned mobile it's going to be a key avenue of banking you mentioned the cloud are there any technology other technologies that you are actually quite bullish on or that you think will be really important i mean maybe yeah some of the lending clubs won't live up to the hype but are there areas that you think right now are being underestimated that are going to change the nature of finance well i think you know where you can make mundane practices uh, more efficient and uh, less intrusive on somebody's lifestyle, like, you know, quick pay or Venmo mm. or PayPal. You know, I think things like that have been, I think, successful, like more on the transaction processing side where going to the bank and getting your passbook stamped with interest, which is what I did when I was a kid, you know, on my paper route, say, um, depositing that check, you know, you just don't need to do that anymore. So I think there's, you know, lifestyle efficiency, productivity uh, applications and, and uh, activities that, you know, make banking just easier on everybody. What about blockchain? You mentioned that earlier. Do you think, I mean, there's a lot of hype about that, but I haven't really grasped how that's going to change things. Do you see a significant role for that technology in finance? I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but, you know, it's trying to make things more transparent for the ledger of different activities, whether it's trading or, you know, 
payment systems where you have massive amounts of payments going one way or another. Um, so I think it's going to help on the efficiency side. And, uh, but, you know, what's happening with banking, and I've said this in different reports and different talks, is that it's really becoming a commoditized business where you have to brand it to get loyalty so that you could reuse the product the investment in the product across more users and people. So, you know, you need a strong brand. And when you have brands, you have to deliver on the brand concepts. So, you know, banks like Chase should continue to do well. Banks like Citi still have to prove themselves again, mm. even though they kind of were the first big bank to do mass marketing of credit cards back in the 70s and 80s. Bank of America is trying to get that brand of you know reliability across mortgages and credit cards and you know other activities. So um, I think that's the key. Do you have a brand and then you leverage off the efficiency that technology presents to your customer base? So it's brand and human element. David Hendler, thank you very much for joining us. I think there's going to be a fascinating debate and conversation to track in the coming years, and we hope you'll come back at some point for an update on how things evolve. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tracy, I think this is going to be a really interesting topic that we're going to be talking about for many years. And I feel like this is an area, the future of the bank, that everyone is sort of clawing around for an answer. And I just don't feel like uh, I just feel like there's going to be like a huge mystery we're all going to be talking about. <laughs> well, I suppose uh, in 10 or 20 years, we'll have to reconvene all thoughts and uh, figure out where we've come out. But I do like the idea from David of having bankers sort of like pilot the Starship bank, right? Like everyone, you just have a couple people who are sitting in front of a computer and they sort of control it and direct this massive organization and you don't need as many people anymore. But the other thing interesting thing he brought up was the trade-off, right? If right. everything's electronic and you're not really interacting with people in person anymore, is that bad for credit management? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It seems like there's kind of a contradiction. So on the one hand, you have the person sitting behind the Starship Enterprise with all this technology around them. But on the other hand, as you pointed out, there's still no better way to assess someone's uh, credit viability than talking to them and actually getting to know them. So it feels like this is something we're going to be wrestling with for a while. I mean, we talked about a couple episodes ago what's going on with Lending Club and the attempts to use big data or whatever to mm -hmm. assess credit worthiness. But it doesn't sound like that issue has been solved yet. It still sounds like there's a contradiction here. No, I don't think anyone's cracked it just yet. So we'll have plenty of stuff to we'll talk about. We'll have plenty to talk about, episodes. and I look forward to uh, Odd Lots episodes in the year 2036, where we see how this all developed. <laughs> all right, I'll see you then. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the latest episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Thanks for listening.